We are on the cusp of a major social change. Do you feel it? Even if you don't, make no mistake, change is coming, and it is going to be unforgettable. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Hart, and here on Prime Spark, where we work with and on behalf of women over 55, I want to help you find that spark that will ignite your way forward, reflect your gifts to the world, and illuminate your path through this next stage of life. Through these podcast conversations, I hope to inspire you to see how you can make a significant contribution to some of the gnarly problems that are facing us right now. Join me, and together, let's discover our Prime Spark. Hi, and welcome to Prime Spark. I'm Sarah Hart, and I'm so happy you're here with us. Prime Spark is designed for women over 55 or close, with a goal to help us all live our happiest, most fulfilling and productive lives now and in the future. The mission of Prime Spark is to change the way our society sees and treats older women. That's a big mission, which only means we all need to be involved and we need to get going now. And today I have the pleasure of talking with Elizabeth Keating, a woman whose work I greatly admire. Elizabeth Keating is a professor of anthropology at the University of Texas at Austin, who specializes in culture and communication. She recently published her third book, which reached number one on Amazon's Movers and Shakers in Books in the first week of publication, and was number one in the cultural anthropology the week after. The book, The Essential Questions, Interview Your Family to Uncover Stories and Bridge Generations, takes an anthropological approach to finding out about your own family history. And the essential questions help you to uncover new sides of family members you've known all your life. Elizabeth's academic research and writing focuses on narrative and knowledge transfer in families, the impacts of technology on society, visual communication, cross-cultural communication, and language and hierarchy. She has conducted field work all over the world and presented many talks and papers. She's a professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Texas, Austin, for over 25 years. Welcome, Elizabeth. I'm so happy you're here with us today. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be here and to talk to you and your audience. Just in getting started, Elizabeth, let me ask you, do you experience getting older? And if you do, what is that experience? And if you don't, why is it that you think that you don't? I do definitely experience it. <laughs> and for me, it mostly comes as um, I don't have the same constant surplus energy that I used to have. I, I have it sometimes and sometimes not. And it takes me a little more time to stay in shape physically, a little more concentration. I'm also, I've become in awe of modern medicine, not just for myself, but for my husband, who's gone through a couple of heart surgeries recently. 
I'd say I'm less concerned with other what other people think. I'm more, it's easier for me to prioritize what I, what I want to pursue. You know, I think from many, many of the women I talk to, something like that is very true for them. Most of us experience getting older, at least physically. I mean, there are physical changes. It, and no matter how, how you take care of yourself, there are still physical changes. And we experience those. But we oftentimes do care a bit less what other people think. And we start getting things in priority. That happens for some of us sooner, later, or never. But uh, for many women, I hear that it is something that has happened for them as they've gotten older. So that's one of the pluses of, of having the gift of getting older. It really is. It really is. I know, Elizabeth, that you think that finding out more about the history of our own families, and we need to do that by asking questions from of family members, that it strengthens um, our sense of self, ourselves as women and men, but I'm specifically interested in women. And can you explain this? How do you, how, what do you mean by that? As I've been interviewing people who are, say, of a grandparent age in many different countries for the project that led to the book, The Essential Questions, I was really struck with the very uh, moving stories of many of the women that I talked to. So, for example, I talked to one woman in the UK who was one of the first women doctors in the UK. There have always been a few, but she was one of the first as they were becoming more numerous. And she talked and her, I interviewed her and her daughter together because I was really interested in seeing what the daughter knew about the mother. And in fact, the daughter said at one point during the whole interview, why didn't I know all of this? And her mother who was now in her nineties said, because you never asked. And, you know, the grandparents tend to, to focus more on the grandchildren or parents focus more on the children. And it's really important to ask, but, what was surprising about this woman's story was that it was clear that it, she was very, very focused on becoming a doctor. And her daughter asked her, well, who influenced you in becoming a doctor? And I thought that was a really interesting question to talk about people rather than as if it uh, was something that didn't have a connection with other people, these sorts of goals and dreams that we have. And it turned out that uh, her father was a very big supporter of hers, be although she didn't know it until very later in life when she arrived one day at her parents' house after a long day being a doctor at her practice and her father said to her, you know, my friends all told me when you went to medical school that it was a waste and that you would just 
get married and have children and uh, wouldn't be able to finish your education. And he said, I proved them wrong. And she said that she had no idea really that those conversations were going on or that her father stood up for her. And at the same time, of course, the she had the determination to do it in the face of being uh, one of the very few of her gender to pursue that path. So it was a very interesting story that showed a lot about the culture of the time and gave her daughter some appreciation, really, in real detail for some of the necessary aspects uh, and sort of luck sometimes that accompanies these possibilities. And do you think that in some way or another, that shaped the daughter's sense of herself as a woman? It definitely did, but in, in a very interesting way. She said that one of the, and, and I think this, her story disrupts some stereotypes because what she said encouraged her to become a doctor was that she really had a, a keen desire to be a mother and have a family, but she wasn't sure that she would be able to, that that would be possible for her. And so she thought I was gonna have to have a profession that was really as interesting as that to compete with that if I didn't get achieve my desire to become uh, a wife and mother. And that isn't really this, this, the narrative I would have expected. Uh, and she did in fact have a family as, as is obvious from her daughter interviewing her, but it was a really interesting perspective on women that it's, po it's certainly possible for women to be professional women and also to highly value their roles as mothers and, and caregivers. And sometimes I think the narrative develops as if one has to give up one or the other. And I think there are many women nowadays who are showing that that's not necessarily the case, even though, of course, it's, it's an extremely challenging balance. And yes, it is for many women. Um... Did she talk about how it was difficult for her? She actually didn't emphasize that. She really talked about her, the joys that she had in her life. And I found this was characteristic of many of the older people that I interviewed, was that they would say things like, we just want young people to understand how much we care about them. And it's their time now. And we are very willing to encourage them in any way that we can. And they tended to talk about their own challenges in ways that emphasize the positive and the negative. So one father who I interviewed in Texas talked about his childhood of extreme poverty. His father was an itinerant worker, was out of work for long periods of time didn't even know if they would have enough to eat. These were the days before there were, were social services. 
And yet, and he said, you know, it makes it hard for me sometimes to listen to the complaints of my own grandchildren because they live in comparative luxury in Houston. He says, I don't, I wouldn't want that to change for them. I'm so happy they don't have to live in those extreme circumstances. But at the same time, I wish they would have an idea of the sacrifices that people made in the generations before them. And that was also a key message that came up over and over that sacrifices were made, especially to send people to college and to make sure they got farther than the fifth grade or the seventh grade, which was very common in many places in the world, especially for women in those uh, those former generations. This is fascinating, Elizabeth. How did you get started? How did you get interested in this? What sparked it? Well, it's interesting because in my own, it was something very personal. My mother died and the loss of my mother was something I couldn't have, even though I was well prepared for it and she had led, led, led a very good life. But I didn't realize how little I knew about her until I have the very um, difficult job and emotional job of going through her things and helping with uh, making uh, everything good uh, in terms of all of the documentation and everything. And I realized there was so little I knew about her childhood and her adolescence. And I think one or two stories only. And I had, as an anthropologist, an interest in how culture had changed between her generation and mine, because I had personally experienced this change as many of us do. So this, this the cultural symbols around a woman's body have changed significantly. So in other words, what, it, what certain dress styles mean has changed radically. So to my mother, she was still interpreting my dress styles in her own symbolic order that she was raised with. And of course, she was despairing <laughs> of the way I presented myself. And so that was, I wanted to know really more about that and more about the kinds of challenges she had that would have been similar to mine. And of course, some of the different courtship stories she might have told me and which would have given me a, an idea of what it was like to be a girl in her time. So I started interviewing people in many places that were of an age uh, of my mother and slightly younger when she died. And I tried out some questions from, I thought, well, an anthropologist wants to know about ordinary life. So an anthropologist goes into a group with a set of questions about ordinary life and beliefs and about uh, certain ways that people interpret the world. And I devised a set of questions and I was having so much fun interviewing people. And as I developed the questions, that I didn't want my students in my classes to miss out on this wonderful experience. So I gave them as one of their class projects to interview a grandparent 
using these anthropologically focused questions like describe like space, time, interactions. So the space question would be describe the home you grew up in, describe the house or the apartment, and what was how was time experienced when you were young, and then describing uh, aspects of interactions and other sorts of concepts that and categories that anthropologists are interested in. And the students just loved the project. They came back with fascinating accounts of life in Texas uh, back then, life in India, life in Nepal, life in Africa, life in Latin America, and also life in Idaho and California. And it was really a wonderful view into the past, but a personal past, their own past. And it developed between them and their grandparent uh, a real uh, connection. So the grandparent was thrilled to be asked. And the, the students had a framework of questions and topics that grandparents would have thought, would have never thought to share. You know, I never thought to ask my mother what the home was like that she grew up in. And that would have been interesting. What was in her bedroom, for example? What, what were the things around her? And so I, so that made me even more determined to write the book so that more people would have the opportunity to know these things about their own history and to know something about the ideas and culture that it has influenced who they are. I would think that at the end of that project for the students, they would also have had a sense of knowing each other a lot better. That's right. Yes. Yes. The details that an anthropological focus brings to the table, those details make an, a person's experience vivid for another person. So are, are the questions, are when the book is the essential questions, are the questions in the book? Yes, each chapter has one of the questions and I talk about why such a concept in anthropology is important. For example, why is space important to anthropologists? Why is it important to us to discuss a group's use of space? And space is such a, a tremendous repository of cultural ideas. It's the way we organize the world, especially the home. The home is a repository of culture. And in describing the house or the apartment, then one has to talk about a lot of aspects of what went on there. And people do. I've had people stay on that and talk about their house for 10 minutes and then suddenly realize, oh, I'm way off topic. But it's perfectly wonderful to for them to be able to just associate memories with a particular place. And place is a very big way that we organize our memories. And so the question about space is very important. So I describe ways that space in that chapter, ways that space is organized differently in different cultures and what's important about space. Then there's a chapter about time and I talk about time in different places in the world. People have a tendency to think that time is a, 
is uh, something we all share uh, the same experience of. And that's not true at all, that time is just as culturally infused as uh, the other aspects of our world. And it's interesting to hear about how someone used to organize their day or even used to feel about time. So it's very common to hear uh, people talk about their young selves as uh, in the terms like, well, the, during the week, it time was very slow and on the weekends, it went very fast and it took forever to get one year older. <laughs> and uh, of course, we don't have that experience now. <laughs> so is can you think of an example of how of how different cultures experienced time and dealt with it and talked about it from any of the yeah. questions. Yeah. Yes, yes. So there are something that you'll be uh, familiar with is, is uh, the way people who fish think about time and farmers think about time. So they think about time in terms of what is necessary to do for for the land and what's necessary to do for uh, the weather. And uh, people who are raising animals have a certain sense of time. And in some parts of the world, in fact, there's a concept of certain people owning time. So time belongs to uh, a person and that person has to be consulted about certain aspects of, of the use of time. And uh, there are also places that were described by anthropologists a couple of generations ago where they didn't really even have a notion of time. So that they had, of course, events that regularly recurred, but there was a sequence in each event that everyone knew the sequence, so it didn't it wasn't the sort of idea that, well, uh, something starts at a certain time. In my own experience, I my first field work I did on a small island in the Pacific that's north of New Guinea and east of the Philippines in the Caroline Islands. And there I had to interview a lot of people, as anthropologists do, and I would say to people, they, they had an, um, a lot of contact with Western culture, so they understood our attention to the clock. And they would say, oh, sure, nine o'clock. We'll, you know, we'll meet at nine o'clock. Well, nine o'clock would come and go. And it was uh, a kind of goal, sure, to make it at nine o'clock. But on the way to the meeting, there would be people, elders, anyone older than them had the ability to recruit their energy to help them with something. So they would get their energy and their time would get siphoned off in the morning in a way that was unpredictable. And so time really didn't work very well there. And people would sometimes tell me when an event was going to start. And they knew that I was oriented to time. So they would give me a time, but that didn't really mean anything. It would start when everyone was ready or when the main person got there, the chief. So 
they uh, were sort of translating things into my terms and I just had to start to adapt. That's really uh, fun because we are so hung up on time. I mean, I think as a culture, we're just so hung up on time. Did any of the, the interview questions bring out anything about um, how the, the women of previous generations felt about how they were treated because they were women? Or is that a very recent um, thing that's happened for us, that we're very aware of how we're treated because we're women? Oh, no, that's not recent at all. In fact, in many places in the world, it's much more uh, regimented. And the question where that came out uh, the most vividly was the question about courtship practices, courtship and marriage practices. So this is where women's behavior is traditionally the most constrained. And as soon as a woman achieves the age, the reproductive age, let's say, then in many societies, her behavior and her autonomy is severely curtailed. People who had grandmothers that grew up in India would describe their longing to be as free as their brothers were to go out in the world. And for them, they pretty much had to stay at home and they were supervised constantly. And they saw the difference, of course, in those expectations. And it was, was difficult for them. And some of them have said that their attitudes changed towards their own daughters and granddaughters. At first, of course, they were continuing that tradition, but as they moved to America, uh, saw, uh, and of course they had the experience many immigrant families do where the, the children, of course, are expected to, uh, to somehow manage between two sets of cultural expectations. But they said that they realized and they were happy that their daughters and granddaughters had had more freedom and more autonomy than they had and more education. They, a lot of them said they wished they could have continued their education and they simply weren't able to because they had to be home to help out with all of the different duties that and, and uh, running of the household. So that was very, very clear that the gender distinctions were extremely important in many of these places, but yet they're changing. They are really changing and uh, women are enabled now to have more access to education in many places. And I think that that is an achievement really of those societies that were able to find a way to accomplish their goals, their their moral goals at the same time as giving women more independence. I'm thinking of what the, the little story you told about um, how how people would sometimes be quote late to a time they said that they would meet you because uh, if an uh, if someone older asked them to do something that that they they had to do it 
did you find a big difference between different cultures in how older people are dealt with or treated or thought of? Yes, there are big differences. In many places, older people do have a tremendous amount of authority and importance. I think uh, that most people would probably agree that in the West, there's a valorization of youth culture Certainly since the 19, uh, late 50s and 60s, when the concept of youth culture emerged, before that time, people told me that young men and women would pretty much dress as their parents and grandparents dressed. But in the uh, as youth culture emerged, then there, of course, the styles that youth invented in order to distinguish themselves and to express themselves is something that we're quite used to now, but that's a relatively new phenomenon. And of course, that created some space for young people being an audience and a set a group of consumers that then could be uh, addressed. And this has given a rise, I think, to some of these ideas about importance of being young. <laughs> and uh, I think it's uh, it's positive in one way because I think it has contributed to what we were just speaking about with women having more opportunities. But it also has meant that older people feel that they're being retired and and uh, and they don't have as much as much agency and authority as they might have in in uh, previous uh, centuries. Have you felt that in your own professional life? Yes, to a degree, but I think that's also linked to the importance of someone who's recently trained with the most recent knowledge. So I think that's probably more important really than age itself. So that if you had an older person who had just completed their degree, I think they would uh, be as sought after as young people. So I think in the, in the academic world, there is still, an, I think older people still do have a lot of authority as long as you have your institutional affiliation. In other words, when you still have a network that can be beneficial to someone who is trying to get some collaborative work done. As women age, there are so many stereotypes that we have to deal with about being older, especially as women, I think, because there aren't really as many role models of women at all in powerful positions that we haven't really had a chance to see them as they as they uh, get older and um, take on more responsibilities. But yes, it, it is very different across societies and many societies being older is something that is highly valued. 
Oh, this is wonderful, Elizabeth. Wonderful research. Um, what's next for you? Do you have a, a next project in mind? Are you already working on something? What's what do you what's next? I am still fascinated by this intergenerational transfer idea and the idea of what goes into the continuation of culture. I'm also very interested in getting the view of younger people towards these conversations with elders. I think it would be very interesting to understand a bit more about their perspectives and how those perspectives are shaped, because it's always interesting to get uh, both sides of any, any dialogue to uh, help the perspective uh, to um, have us all become more talented at dealing with diversity and diverse perspectives. Well, I think what you're doing is really important. Um, I, when you mentioned when your mother died and when my, when my mother died, I learned things about her that I never knew. And I, are there so many things I would like to ask now? And it never occurred to me when she was living. And so I would like to encourage everybody to get your book because, <laughs> and start using it with your family. And that is the essential questions. Interview your family to uncover stories and bridge generations. I think that's so, I think that is just super. Yes, I would like for people not to be in the position that I am in with lots of questions. Lots of questions. Um, yes. And I'm there, there at this point in my life, uh, there's really nobody of that generation who's still around that I can ask a lot of questions that I have that I simply never had before. I didn't think about the questions. It didn't interest me, but it does now. And now it's too late. <laughs> so <laughs> don't let it get to be too late. So that's, that's, our, <laughs> that's our time. Please join us again. You can find our Prime Spark podcast on every popular outlet. Find out more about Prime Spark at primesparkwomen.com. Thank you so much to my guest, Elizabeth Keating. And don't forget, you can find her. At, I have elizabeth-keating.com. Is that where people should go, Elizabeth, if they want That's to get right. in touch with you? That's right. So it's elizabeth-k-e-a-t-i-n-g.com. Get the book. Start interviewing your older relatives. Find out. Find out about things. Thank so, you very much, Sarah. Oh, thank you, Elizabeth. This was delightful. So thank you for being with us, everyone. Take care. Spread tolerance and love. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to stay updated, you can head over to my website, primesparkwomen.com, and get my free spark guide, Seven Questions to Ignite Your Spark, to help you discover your own spark. See you in the next episode.